Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Sophie Shavaria, one of our PhD students here at Kent. In this episode, Sophie discusses her research on women in Republican Rome, how by using various materials she's been able to go beyond the traditional focus on the aristocratic class and look across the social spectrum, and how actresses in particular could become big celebrities in ancient Rome in their own right. We also talk about what brought her to this topic, studying in four different countries, the authors that have had a big influence on her work and gender studies more broadly, and why giving voice to groups like lower class women is important, both in building a more rounded view of life in ancient Rome and addressing modern prejudices. Up into this episode, I'll be honest, I'd never occurred to me the fact that if you look in the index of certain books about the ancient world, it has a subsection about women, but not about men. These things, you don't even realise sometimes they're even there. But as Sophie outlines today, very important that we address them uh, and address the subconscious biases that exist. So as always, thank you for joining me and on to the show. You were in Bath this weekend, right? Yes. <laughs> how, how was Bath? Very cloudy. <laughs> it was lovely. Oh, it's such a pretty city. Um, we went to see the Roman bath that were like Naturally. yeah obviously first thing we went to see it was oh, it was very nice I actually thought a lot about Carl because I thought it was very interesting how they actually uh, advertised the whole museum and they had some nice activities and then you get to try some of the waters which yeah, tastes yeah, a little yeah. bit oh, it's not very tasty but <laughs> supposed to cleanse you though I guess. I don't know. Well, they say it was forbidden for um, kids because I don't know that in the water some substance that can be actually dangerous. So. You know, um, there was, there's, I think this is going back a few decades ago now, there was, uh, I think it was a young girl who swam in the, like the pool or something related to the bath, but she died. Uh, what, in bath? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is like a substance in the water, um, okay. which I, don't, I can't remember the exact story now. But there are there are issues with it, which I think you know if they're giving you a small amount, it's fine. But mm. um, yeah, no, somebody did die there before because of because of the okay. I don't know something in the water. Yeah. But, uh, ironically, given the fact they're supposed to be, a, I suppose, a healing spring. Yes. <laughs> no, I thought it was very interesting how they advertised, and also they had when you wanted to see the different rooms in the bath. I don't know exactly how they did, but I think they had these sort of um, videos with people dressed in Roman times, and then I think they were using some sort of screen in the middle of the room so you could see like in 3d the people as if they were actually walking in the room where you don't have access okay do you see what i mean yeah so like you're around the bath and then you have that sort of screen in the middle where they're projecting the videos and it's like if you're seeing the people in using the bath and you're just walking around yeah that's quite nice so it's it helps you to project and kind of imagine what the people were doing there which i thought was interesting I've not been to baths for years. I think the last time I went to bath, I was probably, oh, I was certainly a really young teenager, if not even younger than that. I don't know. I remember going there, but it was a very, very long time ago. But it's a lovely city, though. Beautiful yes, city. Yes, it's very beautiful. And then on the way back, because it's quite a long journey to here, we thought we were going to drive on next to, uh, we went to see Stonehenge. Oh, yeah. And then that was like just an hour to drive there, and then two hours to Canterbury. So it was like a nice break. But it was very chilly. <laughs> but it's quite impressive. I didn't think there were that the stones were that big and monumental. But it was very crowded. Did you well, actually so. go up to Stonehenge then? Yes. You, yeah, yes. Oh, okay. We went to see it. Yeah. So it was nice. But expensive though, isn't it? Uh, I think, because I, they have student reduction, I think it was something like, Oh my god, I don't want to lie, between 10 and 12 pounds, I think. Okay. But if you're like a member of, um, you know, National English Heritage or National yeah. Trust is free, then. Okay, I've never been. I've driven past it, but I've never actually been up to Well, you it. can actually literally see from, I don't know which road is it, it's just going next to Stonehenge, and yeah. that's why you have all this uh, message before saying, like, it's very likely going to be like, you know, it's going to be some um cars slowing down because people were just like literally they start driving at 15 and they're just taking yeah. pictures from their cars <laughs> the they're building a tunnel there that's going to go underneath they're trying to i don't know if that development is actually going ahead i think it almost certainly is i don't know there's been a lot of debate over the last few years because they're going to change the road around it and have it run uh through a tunnel which i suppose when you're standing there with the hinge 
it kind of removes the you know it makes the the landscape seem a bit more natural by removing the road and obviously the cars yeah. but they're saying that there's a lot of problems that are going to be caused by the creation of the tunnel as well and it doesn't you know doesn't remove all the tourists and people taking pictures all around you so it, yeah. it's quite hard to project yourself into the site and imagine how it must have been when people were using it as a temple yeah or how those aliens built it <laughs> yes, because you're just surrounded with people with like statistic all around. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Yeah. So, research-wise, at the moment, your second year of PhD now. Third. Your third year of PhD. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> Time does fly. Yes. How's it going? Because <laughs> I, I do usually do a bit of research quickly online before the podcast to check. You're actually not listed amongst the current student PhD students at no, Kent. No, no. So I was like, oh no, I think I it's I know it's women in the mid republican period. Yes. What what sort of what's the general avenue of research though? I know I still need to contact Jackie and tell her the title. It's just I don't actually have a very defined title at the moment. Um so what I do is I try to, well, my research actually try to improve a little bit our understanding of Roman society between the 4th and 2nd century BC by uh, examining the lives of women. And it's very interesting because most of the work that has been done on that um, period actually quite almost focused on senatorial women, mm-hmm. which obviously represented a minority, so it's hard to write book about the Roman society if you only focus on five percent of yeah. the people so but it's quite a challenge because obviously if you only work um with literary sources it's just almost impossible to hear about the voice of what we could call marginal or just the ordinary experience of just you know the average Roman woman what she was doing during her day and to what extent she was significant for her inner and outer circle of her contribution to the Roman society. But, well, slowly, I'm getting there, so... <laughs> so when you say not uh, aristocratic women, do you mean women all the way down the social spectrums, yes. the, the very, very bottom, so yeah, slaves as well? And then... Yeah, slave girls, uh, courtesans, of course. Um, then what do I look into? Priestesses. Um, I've been working quite a lot on performers because I've been trying to mm. find out since when we could see actually women on stage in Rome. Um, and then just women that worked in shops and taverns. And yes. So as you say, that's largely based on literary sources. Do you get a mix um, of mix? archaeological? Yeah. Yes. Because I was going to say, so obviously, <laughs> yeah. Because I was going to say. Obviously, you know, one of the reasons people have largely focused on the, uh, you might say, the aristocratic class is because they leave a larger imprint on the archaeological and textual record. Yes. So for women further down the social scale, I mean, obviously, you know, there will be textual references to stuff. But how, how, I mean, like, what sort of stuff do you do to trace them in the archaeological record? I guess you get inscriptions that relate yeah, to them, like burial inscription. inscriptions. Yes, and... that's what I've been working Mostly. And of course, because it's mid-Republican Rome, it's very hard because I've been really trying to focus and work, first of all, on sources from the period to avoid, you know, to get through uh, the later um, centuries, like first century BC, obviously, Mm. uh, which is quite hard. But I've also been looking as well at um, fictional characters because I'm lucky enough to have, well, the work of Plotus and Terence, especially regarding Roman comedies. And then working and finding out to what extent these female characters represent Roman ideas or Greek ones and historical characters or if they're just examples. Or So when you say also the archaeological evidence, what kind of things come into it from that perspective then? Well, you... for instance, I was working on um, so highly successful female performers, especially actresses, uh, because some of them are actually mentioned by authors such as um, Cicero. Um, and then we also have a lot of funerary inscription, and it's quite interesting to uh, analyse the kind of the speech you use to describe themselves. So a very famous one is named uh, Volumnia Citeris. She was the mistress of at least two very famous Roman um, politicians, including Marcus, uh, Mark Antony, sorry. 
and she's usually described as um promiscuous as well and trying to elevate herself to a more distinguished position for instance i think there's an anecdote where sister is quite shocked because she is i can't remember the word in english actually for this this sort of uh school litter in french where you know uh people very wealthy romans were getting through in the road you know people you have slaves that are lifting these um Bed. Oh, <laughs> I don't um, know how this is going in English. Oh no! Now, now you've put me on the spot. And I'm, Do you know? How... <laughs> blank. Um... Right. So she's using actually one to uh, go to the house of um, Mark Antony, and Cicero is quite shocked because it's usually the privilege, or the privilege, sorry, of very uh, wealthy Roman matron. Uh, but then it's quite interesting because if you look into the funeral inscription, the way these uh, performers are remembered is with pride from that family for having very successful career uh, and for their exceptional talents and skills. Um, some were actually famous in all the empire. So it gives you uh, an interesting insight into how they were perceived by people that were more spending more often time with them regarding what well, obviously their families and their friends, their relatives, instead of people of outside their circle. And from the elite, who may have certain prejudice regarding well, their position. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was It helps you to, like, you know, get some challenge a little bit, the way these women were perceived by, you know, from the elite yeah. of men. I mean, because that kind of crosses over as well into, I guess, the... I know of doing Emperor's Biography last term, you always kind of know how... They, the women, even in the imperial family, are always, they're almost like wicked stepmothers. That's the way they're kind of portrayed. Like they poison people and they're really manipulative. Mm. And in some cases, I guess they, they they probably did do things like that, but like no worse than their male counterparts. It's just the way they're presented is always, it always seems to be in a really, not really negative light, I suppose, all the time. But yeah, people like Livia. As you say, yeah, it's it's interesting because I suppose the mental picture that so many people build in their minds of the Roman world is still very male centric, and yeah. <laughs> it's about colouring in that picture a bit more in terms of the, the kind of image is a lot more populated with different types of people, including women as well, yes. and going beyond what the male like the male authors always have to say about them. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I remember when I was doing my undergraduate, which was just in history, so I barely studied the Roman Republic, but when you thought about it, you were just usually imagining the Roman army on the battlefield, or then you were imagined, you were just thinking about Cicero, but Cicero just represented the elite. It was, if you think about Rome, not everyone was having the same routine every day mm-hmm. as Cicero. <laughs> So it's important, I think, to remember when we try to imagine a bit Rome, the city and its inhabitants, that we need to add people with different genders and also people with different age and people with different stature and wealth and obviously different occupation, different expectation Mm. and make it a bit more varied. And um, that's why I try to highlight in my PhD the plurality of female voices and not mm. just try to focus on the one from the elite which are well the easiest to work to find but it doesn't mean that there's nothing to say about the others it's just harder to interpret the silence so have you found anything in terms of talking about plural plural plurality um touched a little bit about on status but do you find anything in terms of women from different different you might say uh ethnic background backgrounds or from different parts of the kind of mediterranean in particular coming to to rome is there anything that comes out there in terms of the differences i mean obviously we're talking about gender and, and to some degree about class but also in that regard as well is there any kind of discernible evidence that a woman from i don't know North Africa, the Near East, from Italy, any kind of differences that come out there at all or anything you've come across? I mean, you can find some mention about their origin, but it's not very often. Um, some of the most interesting things I've found were, again, about the female performers because of their names. It's usually a combination of, uh, well, usually for the most famous one, of a Roman one and a Greek one. 
uh, because it was very common for artists to have Greek names because they usually come from outside of Rome. And then usually when you find one with a Roman name, you're just assuming that maybe at some point they either became famous enough and wealthy enough to uh, buy their freedom or maybe their um, master and sponsor gave them their own freedom, such as Volumia Citeris. Sometimes, usually, um, scholars assume that she was extremely famous. She was definitely gravitating in the circle of Mark Antony and Caesars, um, and she was named Volumnia based on her master, who was named Volumnia. So we assume that at some point she managed to get her own um, freedom. But we also have the name of another girl who is remembered on her funerary inscription as she also, I can't remember the name now, but she has a Greek and a Roman name as well, but she died and she was only 14. So it's a bit interesting to get to wonder to what extent whether how she got her freedom at 14. She must have started in her career very young. We know that usually they actually start to be trained around the age of seven. And oh, you wow. can see them on stage quite just a few years after that. So she must have been very successful or then it's just going to remain a mystery. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, the funerary inscription stuff. So I always find so strange because you've just got the name of a person and some details about them, and sometimes you almost forget looking at that stuff. They were a real person. I don't know. Like when you've got them in a list in a database yes. and the and you're trying to sort out these various patterns that emerge out of the data, and you know, looking into how it fits into your your research question. Sometimes you have to sort of take a step back sometimes and be like, oh, yeah, this is an actual real person that, that lived. I think it's interesting when you say about, like, age, when you get the age of them, particularly when yes. you say somebody was 14, that makes it a bit more real. I mean, the thing for me was doing my PhD is I had a I had a database with all my Mithraic initiates in, but I just... There are times where I completely forget these are real people because you just... You, you see their names so many times in the database and it almost becomes mm. desensitised. And sometimes you have to remind yourself they were they were they were real people i mean do you find that you as you've been going through that you've developed any particular i don't know if attachment's the right word but <laughs> if you like any any of them have stood out or you mentioned a couple so far uh are there any you sort of feel like this is a, this is a really interesting person like beyond just like them being part of the data well there's woman named volumia citeris which i thought was incredibly interesting because she clearly does not come from a very privileged background, but she, I mean, I assume she managed to develop some skills that were highly praised. And um, I think it's her, actually, who is remembered as having, um, she was reading, I think, some poem from, God, I don't remember who that was, if it was poems from Ovid or someone else in a Roman um, stage in front of her. Um, big audience and uh, she was praised for her own skills and she was known as a very good dancer as well and um, I think we also uh, I can't remember in which article I read about that but we someone has actually been studying funeral inscription following well beginning of the empire and noticed an increasing numbers of female performer named Citrus and assumed that it was based on her own popularity that maybe her fame actually outlived her death and uh you know next generation of performers well female performers thought about oh you remember Citrus she used to be that beautiful actresses and um because it's not often that you see women from lower background having their name to remember through well centuries yeah and it's incredible to imagine that she managed to rise to that kind of position that's, in a way <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting cause I mean her name didn't reach us to the same extent but <laughs> yeah but in any case it's, it's very interesting the idea of an actress whose name lives on long after her death I mean she There's... must have been really exceptional yeah exceptionally gifted but so. it's it's a question I suppose of celebrity in the ancient world yeah but it's a nice thing to think she's actually remembered to a certain extent for her career and her skills and not because yeah, she poisoned yeah. someone or <laughs> yeah no yeah so... Um, she's remembered for having entertained people and you know provides some interesting fun. <laughs> yeah, because you're a data set, you're looking primarily at Rome, right? Yes. Do you look anywhere else at all? Well, Rome, but then again, because I work on a very complicated uh, period of Roman history, I've been also looking at uh, other sources for uh, performances, especially in southern Italy, where I found some uh, depiction of 
acrobats and um oh, acrobats. Yes. Actresses and like um pottery, which are really interesting because they really emphasize their flexibility and how they're actually very exceptional um performers. But then it's hard, I need to find a way to see to what extent I can use that sort of uh, sources and see how it is relevant to Rome because I don't know if anyone has been working on the influence of uh, actors and actresses in Italy on Rome, how often, if there were any troops that were visiting Rome from time mm. to time or not, the kind of connection Italian city had with Rome. That's something I need to look into it, but that could be interesting <laughs> and <Yeah>. be useful. <laughs> As I say, it's one of those things that does it does spiral off in different directions because there's a saying that in some respects what you were saying about Volumia. Did I say that right? Volumia, yes. Yeah, Volumia. They, as I say, it's almost like touching on things like the history of celebrity and things like that. Yes. Like these ideas that... It's like the historicist. <laughs> yeah. It's... People whose name was known to, well, pretty much the whole society. Yeah. Do you think then... Well, I suppose you would do then. I was just wondering, do you think that people would have come from far around to see particular people like her perform then? That she would have been an attraction unto herself? If she was that that famous, that her name kind of reaches beyond beyond death for her skill. I don't know about her. Uh, it will be hard, but we have. I think I've, there's an inscription of some uh, an actress named Basilia, but I think it's second century AD, and she's remembered by um, her friends from um, a troupe of artists as. Um, and I can't remember exactly how it says, so basically she's praised for her exceptional skills again and her fame that spread to, and now I'm quoting the inscription, said all four corners of the empire, basically saying how origins were coming just to see her. And then obviously now it's even more interesting because it's not just related to just the city, but then it's just imagining that people in different cities around the Mediterranean Sea actually knew her name and were coming to see her. I don't know where they were coming from. Yeah. From so, just that inscription, we can assume that she was very famous. Because <laughs> yeah. I know people, obviously, we talked about this earlier, the, the, the main focus has largely been on the male side of society when it comes to the Roman world. But I know gladiators could become particularly famous and obviously win their freedom, but people would come to support them in the same way they would. people would choose particular chariot teams to support as well but it's interesting as you say the the other side of that particularly the theatre of people going to the theatre not to necessarily watch the play uh, first and foremost but to see a particular actress or to see a particular performer yeah. on stage I mean we have that interesting anecdote which I think was oh, I don't want to say anything silly but it might be from Kato the Elder who I think left the theatre just before our female performer were actually performing a striptease during oh, okay. the um, Festival of the Florilla and he left because um, I think the actresses didn't dare to um, take off their clothes in front of someone with such a dignified statue, but he left not to prevent the rest of the audience from actually enjoying the show. Okay. So we assume that obviously this kind of show were very popular. Uh, <laughs> And then it's kind of I don't know when you when you say something like that. <laughs> I know it sounds, it sounds <laughs> yes, like a, and... <laughs> it sounds like I don't I, I don't I'm not I'm not asking you to draw like a vivid picture, but I mean, how far would they go? Because I'm just wondering, would it be like would would they literally take everything off? Or would it be down? Would it be like kind of modern burlesque? You might say where it's kind of part about. <laughs> but we the, don't kind of... really have a lot of uh, description about what they were doing, yeah. which is also the reason why I think a lot of um, scholars have been, well, debating whether these women actually performing that striptease during the Floralia were actually actresses or prostitutes. I usually tend to think that they were actually prostitutes and that actresses were performing different kind of show. Uh, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think um, Timothy Wiseman wrote on the subject explaining that we have to look into this kind of show in a different context and the fact that they were during a religious festival and that the idea of uh, nudity was probably connected to the notion of fertility as well. Mm. It's complicated, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, but the striptease, I think, we know for the Florilla, I'm not sure there was any for any other uh, festival or um, scenic representation. 
but we know that they could be sing, singing, dancing, um, or simply reading poems as well. And now I'm looking into it to see whether we could actually see women on stage in uh, comedies or tragedy, because I think there's some scholars who have argued that actually prostitutes uh, could be seen on stage in comedies in um, playing characters that had um, no nothing to say. Okay. Which is quite interesting. But they had because... nothing to say, so they're just kind of background characters? Yes, so, yeah. exactly, right. but played by women. Yeah. Which is an interesting idea that I need to look into it, obviously, because we tend to imagine the Roman stage as empty of women, but that's because we always assume comedies and tragedies, you know, the canon of um, what you can see in the theatre, and then forgetting about the mime show that actually became incredibly popular in ancient Rome, especially from the first century BC and then onwards. So, and in this case, you could clearly see women playing the female roles in this sort of farce, and it was a bit obscene as well. So what led you to pursue this particular topic? Women in general in ancient Rome? Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, I guess more broadly, I mean, because you obviously narrowed down, or... to a, <laughs> narrowed down to a particular time period, but yeah, why, what, what was it that sort of drew you towards this? I think it came from, it is related to the way I've been taught history, I think, for my undergraduate degree in France because my degree was just in history so I've been studying medieval history in France and Victorian England and French agriculture in the 18th century like some topics were a little bit boring and I don't (laughs) think I mean I can't remember ever through my three years ever really learning anything about women and we still we spent an entire semester doing the Byzantine Empire I can't believe we didn't have a seminar or something about empress mm-hmm. and i remember coming to Cannes for my ma and having the research seminar with um patty and one of our week was based on the theme was gender history so we had to do some uh readings previously and then we discussed about it and i just realized that this was so interesting i can't believe i had spent it was like if during all my undergraduate studies i've been in the shadow not thinking too much uh well was not even outside of the bar it's just the rest of the population because all I've done was pretty much just political and military history and that's how what really got me into well a more social aspect of history and just the experience of the ordinary people like me and what it what it meant for them to be Romans and where you could see them what they were doing the kind of relationship they had not only with their family but also their friends and how they were so looking into people's from the elite as example and to what extent it reflects our own experience of modern society I thought that was I think because it's just something that wasn't really taught to me when my my undergrad I missed it and really wanted to look into it Mm. and uh, I really enjoy it (laughs) it's so interesting yeah so you weren't when you were younger then you didn't really do anything on the the Romans as such then, it wasn't until you got to... Do you mean at uni or before? Oh, even before that, going like right back. Uh, you know, I'm always interested, like, when did people have that <laughs> moment where they thought, oh, Roman history or Roman archaeology is something I want to pursue. But the, you're saying that when you went to uni, that wasn't really something you covered so much? No. As you... And even before, I think, because the way history is taught in France is in parallel with geography, so you don't always study history. And I don't remember studying antiquity just when I was, I think, 11. That's when you do a little bit mythology, Greek and Egyptian and Roman, but that's pretty much it. And then even for when I was doing my undergrad, we did the Punic Wars, and then I think we did the uh, Republican Rome, but just, you know, studying the evolution of the institution, so... Okay. And the law, so... She's very basic. <laughs> so when I moved here and started doing my MA, it was just... Oh, you did your MA in ancient history? Yes, here with the term in Rome. Why did, you, was... why did you decide to switch to... Why did you decide to focus on ancient history then? What was the oh. the draw? It was a tough choice <laughs> because I really, I'm really interested as well as uh, 19th century European history, okay. especially geopolitics, um, everything before the First World War and after Napoleon. I think it's just... It, I've always been, antiquity has always been what I thought was the most interesting and... Right answer. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and also the most um, surprising in a way because 
it's just such a different system of values and understanding of the world it's just sometimes it doesn't make sense for me what I read and you're like but it did make sense for these people mm. and it's just I like having my mind blown <laughs> and well when you do modern history it doesn't happen as often I'd say yeah. that with antiquity so I thought it was a good challenge and and I don't regret it even though it was tough it is really tough to study ancient history, especially religion, because of the lack of materials, mm. which I wasn't really an issue before. No, it's nice. But it wasn't the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge was just doing research in English. So. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you studied now, is it in four different countries? Or you've been to school in four different countries or been at uh, educational institutions? Yes. Well, countries? it's just part of, because I've been lucky to do... So I did my undergraduate in France, and I was lucky to do an Erasmus um, semester in, so I can't say the name in Hungarian, which is, I think, the Catholic University of Budapest, Okay. where I mainly did, actually, a lot of um, seminars and lectures about Roman archaeology, but uh, in okay. Hungary. <laughs> did, you do to, did you go to Aquincum then? To the yes. Do you, see the, do you see the Mithraea? Uh, well, I probably did, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> they, got two, they got two really well-preserved temples to Mithras there. Is okay. there? Yeah, I went there when I was doing uh, PhD uh, for research. But they've got a lot of stuff in storage as well, a lot of sculptures, and it's a really, yeah. really interesting place. No, I really like it, but I think, which is quite interesting, I was taught my <laughs> module on Roman archaeology by someone who is actually a specialist of archaeology in Syria. Oh, really? And the... Um... No, how is this called in English... Uh, the temple, no, the um, crusader. Sorry, oh, the okay. crusader. Yes, the um, crusader um, archaeology. But he's also a specialist as well in medieval history in uh, Hungary, and that's with him which um, actually done the first excavation, which were in uh, just a medieval castle and the old um, capital city of the Hungarian kingdom in Estragon, which was a very interesting experience. Strongly focused on archaeology, which was very interesting for me because I have a stronger theological background. Um, and then when I uh, moved to Canterbury for my MA, it was part of the um, the degree to go spend my second mm. term at the American University of Rome, where the course was designed by Ray, of course, but it was taught by, I think her name is Valerie Higgins uh, from the American University. And that was a completely different style of teaching, obviously, where it was on site and that was incredibly refreshing <laughs> than just being sitting and reading books all the time. Yeah. It was a nice experience. I really miss it. <laughs> I can imagine, particularly Perver as well, I imagine. Oh my God, that was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and we went there for the winter term, but it was sunny every day. Just perfect. It's really the best period to get to Rome just before Easter. It's less crowded. Mm, yeah. I mean, don't want to go there in the middle of the summer because it's too hot. No. No. Well, even though you can actually go to Austria, the beach, for, I think, one euro oh. from Rome, she's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Another crack in archaeological site as well, Austria. Yes. <laughs> for miles. Very nice. Also, as well, when you were studying out there, they had rat track there. Yes. Uh, yes, we went there. That little was did you know at the time, and a couple of years later, that we'll be hosting it here, and then you'll be on the committee. For well, it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't even sure I was going to graduate from my master because, well, you know, I did my undergraduate in France and I had two hours of English taught every week. How do you improve that? Two hours a week is ridiculous. You just, mm. you, you barely stagnate. I mean, I got lucky to have the chance to go to Budapest and just get to talk with people in English because I don't speak Hungarian, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and that really helped me to actually maintain my level in English. But then when I moved to the UK, that was a different level. It was so hard. And uh, I had to read every article three or four times to make sure that I actually understood what the author was talking mm. about. And it was quite a challenge. I was so worried. I was like, it's it was draining as well a lot of the time. To... It was. I mean, I wasn't going out a lot. <laughs> I wasn't really enjoying the English student experience, but... Well, it was worth it because I graduated yeah, in the yeah, end. Yeah. And I think now my English is a little bit better. So. <laughs> Have you found the differences between studying in France and studying uh, in the UK? Is it is it In general, do you mean? Yeah, or? well, yeah, particularly in terms of universities. I mean, well, a few weeks ago when Patty was on, she was talking about 
the American system and like a PhD in American system is much, is you could say a lot more intense because they have to a lot more checkpoints. It's usually takes longer to do. There's a lot more that's kind of expected you in terms of, expected of you in terms of outputs, I suppose. And she was also talking about things like you know you have to do things like public speaking really in America, which is something we don't really do here. But I was just wondering if you know if you've noticed any. There are any, I mean, obviously, it's harder, I suppose, in terms of because you've gone from undergraduate and now to postgraduate study. So even in a UK institution, that would be different. But I was wondering if, yeah, you you just notice any differences structurally wise? Oh yes, that's clear difference. I, sp- I mean, if we just focus on the PhD course between the way it's um, organized in France and how it is in the UK, which is sort of another reason why I actually enjoy doing mine here, yeah. which is in France, it's almost impossible to finish a PhD before you're. 32, 33, because it's just, it takes forever because before you can actually get enrolled into a PhD program, you usually have a two years master where you write, mm. you slowly build your um, dissertation. And then because it's, there's more and more people actually doing PhD, I think it's just that's how the process has evolved. Now it's almost impossible to get into a PhD program in France if you don't have. So first, it's sort of national exam, which gives you a diploma for teaching in secondary school. So it's called CAPES in French. Um, So you need to do that exam and actually get your accreditation for teaching in secondary school. I don't know anyone who's doing a PhD and doesn't have that diploma. And there's a second one, which is called the Agregation, which is the same kind, but it's... um, Well, the difference with the first one is basically harder it's incredibly hard i mean i know most of my lecture had to take it two or three times to get it uh and then i think the point is just you usually get a uh, rise in your wage but it also because it's very harder it's just usually you know the best of the promotion who gets that sort of diploma and that's the one who are more likely to get enrolled into a pg program so just to get these two diplomas, it takes between two and three years after your MA. So you don't usually actually start your PhD after you've just finished your master. And then you get into your PhD. And because, you know, French university, the tuition fees are not as high as here in the UK, you have to continue usually teaching in secondary school, which takes between, I don't know, 15, 20 hours of your week. Yeah. So sometimes PhD students actually spend an entire semester not even doing a reading related to their PhD because they're just too busy teaching. That's why it's not surprising that people in France, they spend between five and six years at least before finishing their PhD. It's obviously very different in science. I'm just talking about um, humanities. But that's why you usually have your master and you're 25, then you start your PhD at 28, I would say, on average, which is the age I should be when, fortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I'll finish my PhD. So it's quite a big difference. And and then so you probably finish your PhD at thirty two, thirty three, and then you try to get a job. Yeah, yeah. So yes, it takes much longer. It's very hard, and the competition is just insane. I mean, I think they've frozen most of the job for this year. I think in antiquity, there's just one or two new ones this year for I don't know four hundred people applying. Yeah, yeah. That's not too dissimilar in the UK as well. Probably I a bit mean, better in I the UK, thought the process there would be different, but yeah, it's just. Crazy. So, well, let's hope for me it's an inventive that I can actually carry research in both English and French. Yeah, we'll that's see. Yeah, yeah. Go back to Hungary as well. Actually, no, you don't want to get hungry at the moment. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Take that one back. Actually, I think they've cl- they're going to close. I think they have a European university. I they think they have that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of big Hungary <coughs> at the moment um, with the yeah with the current government and academic institutions. Yeah. Mm. So. What, I mean, just to actually circle back around to, to your current topic, I mean, it does seem this way to me, at least in terms of the archaeological side of things, you've probably got a better understanding in terms of what's going on in the world of ancient history and classics, but are there a lot more people now studying women in the ancient world? Do you think that's a really growing, developing field? I mean, I suppose there's people that have done it before, but is it much more populated now in terms of scholars that are looking at it? Do you know? In the UK, are we talking? I suppose more broadly. In actual fact, actually, that although that does raise another question for me, is there a difference in terms of approaches to things like gender in the ancient world between France and the UK, the kind of scholarly landscape, or do you think it's across the board now that more people are starting to pick pick up on that and study it? I think. 
trends at the moment, um, scholarship on genders and women's history is quite, it's still a little bit behind, even though I think they've been trying to um, catch up their delay from especially American legislative scholarship and then the British one. I'm, I mean, I'm actually very uh, happy to see that there's more and more universities in the UK that are offering courses on gender history or women's history, and not only in classics, but also in other period of history, which is still something I find very interesting. I think in France at the moment, there's only a couple of universities, but I might be wrong, that are actually offering um, degrees where you can be taught about women's history or gender, and it's not something, it's not as widely popular and taught I would say as in the Anglo-Saxon world unfortunately I mean based on my experience I was an undergrad student just four years ago and it was they were just completely absent from my whole degree and it's not just women it's just also anything related to I would say slavery or thinking about the idea of the foreigns and the Romans for instance or just simply the idea of thinking about children in the ancient world or, or people it's just, I can't believe it. I mean, that's how the way it is. And I'm really hoping that, you know, the subject, we're going to realise that there are still very interesting aspects of the Roman society that are worth to be studied. But, yeah. Fortunately, uh, it's going to get bigger, better in France. <laughs> yeah. But, well, there's nothing much I can really do at the moment about it. Yeah. Just finish my PhD and then maybe, fortunately, one day I'll be able to design my own course. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure people can hear these marginal voices and how interesting they are and give you a better idea about plurality of voices and identities as well when you think about what it meant to be Roman. Being Roman is not just being, you know, an elite male politician. It's more than that. And it's just a massive puzzle where we have to find all the pieces. Mm -hmm. But is there, I might say, community of scholars that you've met in the UK at all that really... They're also focusing on similar themes to yourself. Do you have many people that you've uh, come across that have a very shared interest in, in that kind of idea of gender in the Roman world? I mean, most of the people I've had the chance to talk whenever introducing my research at um, conference sound really interested in the subject, even though that weren't um, their specialty. But next month, I'm actually going to talk about uh, my research at... Um, conference in Glasgow which is on women and gender in the ancient world and the bible um, and this is going to be actually very interesting because it's the first time I'm actually attending a conference which is really in genders and women's history gender studies and women's history and most of the people that are actually talking are working on very um, similar subjects to mine so this is going to be a first but I've never met them yet in person so that is going to be an interesting experience I'm sure. So that's, that's women across history? Yes, it's called, I think, um, Gender and Women's History in the Ancient World and the Bible uh, okay. at the University of Glasgow because I think this is where they actually have this year course on that subject. And I think they also have some undergraduate students who are going to be uh, presenting some of their research, which is going to be interesting, I think. Okay. And also see what people are doing, not just in Rome, but in Greece, in Bibles, history and studies, what they what is new about well, what is new? What people have been writing writing about women's condition in the ancient world as a whole, I would say. Might find some inspiration. Yeah, no, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean I was wondering because it would be interesting, I suppose, to I mean, we talk a lot about on, on this podcast, I suppose, or a lot of people um have been on have discussed about the importance of interdisciplinary pro approaches mm. and uh talking to people that study different periods of history. And how that relates. Um, I was just wondering if there was anything like that, as in like uh, saying that brings together wider historical kind of perspective on it. Um, well, we there's the Women's Classical Committee in the UK yeah. as well that has been founded a few years ago, I think, uh, with not only people working actually on women's history, but just female classicists, mm. uh, which is very interesting. And I really um, I'm interested in their initiative, which aimed to um, you know, on Wikipedia, increase the visibility of uh, female classes, which I think is very important. Um, but yes, for my subject, my research, the biggest name in the scholarship are mainly American. That would be Amy Richlin, for instance, or Ellen Fentham. Um, 
I mean, even for whatever the Greek word and just in general, the ancient words are a which are really key work that you need to know about when you're interested in the subject because they really contributed to make it relevant and legitimate, I think. But they've published since the 70s, so that's why now they're really, the, I would say, canon for um, yeah. the history of women in the ancient world. And then there's obviously a lot of work, but then it's it's on different themes. So, for instance, I've been I've really enjoyed reading the work of um, people like Annie Strong or um, Megan Deleuze about uh, women in Matron and also processes in Republican Rome at the moment. Uh, reading, for instance, um, Amy Russell's, which is more about the idea of space and gender experience in Republican Rome. So it changed based on the subject. I'm actually um, the theme I'm actually working on. I have a very varied uh, scholarship, just like the varied voices I'm working. Is there, <laughs> is there anything you'd really like to see in terms of the future of how? I mean, I suppose you kind of alluded to it anyway. I'll talk a bit about it anyway about the research avenues, about continuing to explore those those marginalised voices. Um, yeah. I mean, how would you like to see that that develop in future? Do you have any ideas on that at all? Well, that's something I'm thinking about because. The point is that at some point, women's history just, you know, we stop being a section of history and it's just part of, well, you know, human history as a whole. And there's no need to make a separation and put that much the emphasis on. But it's still quite striking when, you know, you look into a textbook and you look into the index and there's an entry for women, but you don't have one for men because, you know, they're everywhere in the book. But people still wonder, where are women? Mm. You know, and that's why sometimes I'm still a bit. You know, you read textbook and let's say something very simple that I worked on, which is the College of the Pontiff in Rome, where people have been focusing a lot on the priest for so long. And there's actually a lot of priestesses who are also part of that um, um, college. But if you publish book for students where you write the priest of the College of the Pontiff, students might not think that there's also priestesses. So sometimes I think we also, we might want to, you know, change or be a bit more careful with the terminology we're mm. using in our own um, work and maybe sometimes, you know, put a little bit more the emphasis and say priests and priestesses as a way to remind ourselves and then one day we won't maybe need this reminder, but it might actually help for us to challenge a little bit our mental image of the Roman society, you know, which sometimes it might make sentence very long, but it might still be worth it to say, you know, men and women as well as their children that will participate in certain rituals. So instead of imagining just a man performing a sacrifice for the family, now you imagine in the background his wife and his children as well. And then, you know. That's really interesting, actually, what you said about... <laughs> no, it's a, it's a very good point, actually. And maybe because we've, we know these things, we've like internalised them, so when we imagine it, they're there. But the people who are learning and getting into discover classics if we don't be careful about the words we're actually using they might if you just say priest then but then there might not be any priestesses and there might not be any children involved mm. in the activities performed by yeah it might be a bit you know sometimes repetitive i think there's a stage where it's important it's important necessary to remind that they are actually here they were heard and they've always represented half of the population so it's not because the ancient author ignore them from the narratives that we have to do the same and leave them in the shadow that's something i'd like to see more but not just about women it's just i guess that's what i've been thinking about a way to introduce which is very complicated because when you try to get to your point it's easier to use generalization and now when you have to take into account the large variety of identity you can find in ancient rome then it would take i don't know more than just one book to um present and introduce them all but I think it's still important to remember us sometimes that Andrew Rome is not just people like Cicero you know I mean it's very obviously we don't think like that but I still think sometimes when people think about Andrew Rome they just forget that you know people who says that you couldn't see children in the forum or you couldn't see any women or you couldn't see courtes in actually and then you're like, so what was happening? They were trying to get through the forum. Was someone going to stop them? Yeah, was there any yeah. barrier or, you know, someone controlling? Oh, sorry, no, you can't. It's not yeah. the time of the day or, you yeah. know. That's kind of thing. Yeah, no, it is. That. Those, those are, they're just things that sort of people have 
often taken for granted in the past. And then actually, yeah, when you scrape the surface, as you say, yeah, is there somebody just standing there saying like, nope, can't come through yet or whatever, <laughs> you know, what happens in that, what, what happens in those situations? Well, you know, they were just walking all around the forum to get from one end to yeah. the other. Instead of getting That's a long way around in Rome as well. That's a long trip around. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it's just about asking the good questions sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sometimes asking the questions that some people think it's obvious, but yes. sometimes isn't, the answer isn't actually as obvious as they, as people like to think it is. Exactly. I mean, one of my chapters is about um, gender experience in mid-Republican Rome, and I the more I read about it, the more I write on that subject, the more I think the question is not where you could find women, but where actually you couldn't find them. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, I can't imagine a place where someone would just prevent them from, you know, using barrier, prevent them the entries of having access. And it, it's not even about the way they use it. Sometimes they can just walk through a place. They don't have to stop, but you will still see them. They will still experience the space. They will still mm. left the identity somewhere. So it's just very hard to <laughs> trace that. Yeah, yeah. They're there. We just you just got to, sometimes you got to squint, squint a bit to to see them. I guess. Yes, but if we can think about them, then we're gonna get used to see them in our own, you know, yeah, visual map yeah. of Rome and you know other cities in the ancient world, <laughs> yeah. and not just them, but you know the rest of the population. And then, well, we get a better picture about you know the Roman society as a whole, and we get a little. One step closer from the truth, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it's all about. <laughs> yes, it's already yeah. a win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, if anybody, if anybody wants to find out about what you're doing, is there anywhere they can go? You, you're on Twitter. Yes, I have a Twitter, which is just uh, I think Chevalier Sophie, which is my surname and my name, and I have an academia page, um, which is just about my next, my upcoming talks, and um, that's pretty much it. Yes, I, yeah. at the moment, <laughs> and track as well. Yes, I'm going to be at track. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not talking. One of the organisers, though. The yes, I will be talking, but I look forward to listening to all these very stimulating talks. I'm sure it's going to be great. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously we're organising it. Yeah, no, no, it's going to be great. So it can only be great. Yeah. And, uh, then Easter holidays. Yeah. You going back to France for Easter? No, I'm actually I'm actually going to see my sister in Switzerland. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. But there won't be any snow, so... I mean... There might not be a lot of snow, so yeah. I'm skiing for this year oh. again. Oh. Cool, right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for inviting yeah. me. <laughs> no, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, I did. Thank, thank you very you. much. <laughs>